Well, thank you for welcoming me with such beautiful weather. You know, it makes me go, wow, I didn't know Georgia was so beautiful and, and uh, the beautiful mountain views and everything. So you all prepare that all for me, and I really do appreciate it. Uh, <clears throat> this afternoon, I want to discuss what I call Christianophobia and uh, take a look at that. Now, what do you mean by Christianophobia? Basically, my definition of it is uh, irrational hatred or fear of Christians. You could think of it as the same thing as sort of Islamophobia. Uh, homophobia, anti-Semitism, things of that nature. <clears throat> Not a lot of research has been done on it, and I'll, I'll comment why uh, partially through here. Uh, but I just want to take a look at it as a scholar and then talk about it towards the end as a Christian, what some of our ideas on what we should do about it is. There's, there's a problem with looking at something such as prejudice or bigotry. Is, and that problem is people don't want to admit that they're prejudiced or bigoted. You know, we, we call this a social desirability effect. <clears throat> if we surveyed everyone in, in Georgia and we asked them, you know, uh, a question about overt racism, we'd probably find that only a tiny percent would say, oh, yes, I love David Duke. And most of them, unlike Trump, have heard of David Duke. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, but that doesn't mean that racism has gone away, right? So how do we get at this? Well, the first thing I wanted to do was to approach the question of whether or not there is animosity towards Christians. And in this talk, I'm really talking about conservative Christians. Uh, I want to say conservative Protestants, although I, I do think that there, there could be some conservative Catholics that, that maybe face this as much. Uh, is, there a, is there animosity towards them that's even worth paying attention to? In other words, maybe the animosity we see is just a few nutcakes out there. To look at this, I looked at a national probability sample. And in this sample, they had a series of questions called thermometer questions. Basically, it's how, how well you feel about a certain group uh, from 0 to 100. So I graduated from the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, so for the thermometer, if you were to say you versus Texas at Austin, I'd probably put 100. You know, that's as high as you can go. On the other hand, if you put Oklahoma, I would go negative 10. So that, that's, that way you rate how much you like or don't like another group. <clears throat> what I wanted to do was I asked the question, not how high you rate a group, but how high do you rate a group above other groups? In other words, you may be one of those just mean, nasty people just rate everyone at 25. And so when I look at you and, you and you rate a group, you rate Jews, they're 25. Are oh, you hate Jews? Nah, everyone's 25. <laughs> or you may be Mr. and Mrs. Bright Sunshine. Everybody gets 100, you know. Uh, my students want me to be that way. The test, everyone gets 100. It doesn't work out that way. So what I was curious about is rating people significantly lower than everyone else. Now, some of the groups are groups such as the middle class, and people don't really have a lot of passion about that. So I limited my, my sample to groups that were either racial or religious. So black, white, uh, uh, Hispanic, and Asian, I believe those were the four racial groups. And then there were six religious groups that people could rate. Uh, they could rate, uh, I believe it was Muslim, Mormons, Catholics, uh, Christian fundamentalists. 
uh, Christian just in general, and then atheists. I added that all together, got an average, and then I was curious, did you rate any of those groups a standard deviation below that average? And if you did, then I asserted that you had a disaffinity towards that group. So you could rate them an 85. But if everyone else gets rated 100, why'd you rate them an 85? Okay, so that's basically what I looked at. So given that then, how, you know, how do Christian fundamentalists rank? Hopefully you all can see, can read this up here. The group that had the highest disaffinities, that was ranked lowest most often, were atheists. About 45% of them. And there's a lot of literature, and I can go into that question and answers if you all want, if you all want about uh, that. The second group were the Christian fundamentalists. And in fact, they were slightly higher than the Muslims. Now, we're here in our society about Islamophobia, right? People have disaffinities to Christian fundamentalists at least as much as they do to Muslims. Uh, it drops down to Mormons. What's really interesting is when you go to the racial groups, because I did this with the racial groups as well, it's very low. You know, uh, people are, are highly unlikely to, to, to uh, rank whites, blacks, Hispanics, and Asians a standard deviation below the mean. Uh, in other words, and I, I do believe this to be true, religion often becomes more of a source of conflict in our modern society than race. Uh, and, and, you, and you can see some, some of this here. You know, not in all certain situations, but you can see it in here, the disaffinities. People are more willing to say, I kind of don't like this group. So this answers the first question. Against conservative Christian groups, is, are, is there a significant number of people who have disaffinity towards them? The answer is yes. Now, the next question, though, is who has this disaffinity? So because I'm using a, a sample, a national sample that has a lot of uh, questions, uh, demographic questions, I can uh, look at, oops, I'm going the wrong direction. I can look at a variety of different, uh, different types of variables. For example, I can look at gender. Okay, this over here on your far right, this is the total, it's your baseline. Okay, that's the total average. And this is the percentage of females who had a disaffinity towards each group. And that's fundamentalist, atheist, Muslim, and Mormon. And that's the pattern it's gonna be for all these, okay? So if we look at those who are anti-fundamentalist, percentage females. Uh, females are less likely to be anti-fundamentalist than, than your average. Uh, Anti-atheists are actually more likely to be uh, females than your average. So that's how we interpret that. Well, why do I keep doing this? I just, well, it's a cool effect. You get to see it multiple times now. All right. Race. This is percentage white. Once again, you got, you got your standard, and then you can see that uh, compared to the standard, those who are anti-fundamentalists are more likely to be white uh, compared to, say, the atheists, which is less likely, <laughs> especially Mormons. Education. This is the percentage with a bachelor's degree. 
here it's all about equal, except for the anti-fundamentalists, who are more likely to have a bachelor's degree. Income. This is a percentage to make over $100,000, none of which are college professors. You, you, you got your baseline, and then you got the anti-atheist, anti-Muslim, anti-Mormon, which is, you know, they're less likely to if they make a lot of money to be those things, but then the anti-fundamentalists. Now, let me summarize what we just saw. People with animosity towards Christian fundamentalists are more likely to be male, white, educated, and wealthy. In the social sciences, when we talk about people with power, we talk about gender, we talk about men having more power than women, we talk about race, whites over non-whites, education, the more educated over the less educated, and wealthy, the rich over the, the middle class or poor. People who have animosity, the one that I just documented, are more likely to be more powerful individuals in our society. Atheists face more overall animosity, but the people with animosity towards conservative Christians have more per capita power. And when you consider you know, that the same percentages, about the same percentages of people with animosity towards Christians as animosity towards Muslims, so it's about the same numbers of groups, but the ones animosity towards Christians, once again, are white, male, highly educated, wealthy individuals. What else do we know about them? Religiosity. Now, this is, should not be a surprise. This is percentage that never attended a religious institution. Uh, and it doesn't, it's not a surprise that those who are anti-fundamentalists are more likely to never attend a religious institution. There's other me measures we can look at. They're less religious. Uh, political affinity, uh, percent conservative. And once again, you can see that those who are anti-fundamentalists are less likely to be con politically conservative. So now we know they're more likely to be progressive. And why I want to bring this out is that it's not just that they are powerful, but they tend to be irreligious and they tend to be progressive. And so what I would argue is that we're going to find such individuals, it's going to be in our cultural institutions. Uh, entertainment, arts, media, academia. This describes individuals in those institutions. And when I get later on and I talk about what we as Christians need to do, we need to be aware of that particular dynamic. Okay, a couple of early implications now. Individuals with more per capita social power are more likely to have anti-Christian bias than any other type of bias. If, I, if you're looking at someone who's in a position of power and you're wondering, is this person racist? Are they homophobic? Are they anti-Semitic? Are they Christianophobic? If you guess Christianophobic, you're more likely to be correct. And it's not a guarantee, of course, but you're more likely to be correct. And disaffinity towards conservative Christians can be understood as a bias by socially powerful political and religious progressives. That's, that's a way of understanding it. Okay. Now, to this point, we know that these disaffinities are there. But what we don't have right now is Christianophobia. 
right? Because just because you have disaffinity doesn't mean you have an unreasonable fear or hatred of something. Hence, my hatred of Oklahoma is quite rational. You know, have you, have you been to Oklahoma and had to deal with the Sooners? And what's a name like Sooners anyways? You all know where the name Sooners comes from? Those people who cheated. And we have to play them every year. What, what, what can you say? Uh, what I need to do is not just look at quantitative analysis. I need to look at qualitatively how people with this sort of animosity feel. Because I can't say it's irrational. I could just say it's there. I could say it's, it's there as much as, as uh, you know, Islamophobia. But I can't really say that, that, uh, that it's irrational at this point. Perhaps these individuals, because they're so well-educated, Perhaps they have rational concerns about Christians, and that's what drives it. So what I did was I used an earlier study where we, we had targeted a group of cultural progressive activists. Now, check out the demographics of this group. Our group was 93.6% white, 64.1% male. Over 50% made more than $75,000 a year. In fact, over 40% had a graduate degree. 16.7%, in fact, had a doctorate. Almost three-fourths were atheists or agnostic, and only 2% were born-again Christian. We did not ask them about their political ideology, although having read their answers, I can tell you it was an overwhelmingly Democrat or radical group. But does this not seemed the template for a group that would have a lot of Christianophobia in it, given what we just learned. White, male, wealthy, educated, irreligious. We asked them a series of questions on how they felt about Christians and, and, and conservative Christians, the Christian right, all that sort of stuff. And it's based on these questions that now we begin to get a sense of some of the attitudes that drive uh, some of this animosity. For example, some of the hostile quotes, and I just use this just to give a little bit of a flavor. Not all the respondents were giving quotes like this, but this gives us a sense when I talk about irrational hatred or anger. Uh, I want them all to die in a fire. Talking about Christians, Christian right, conservative Christians. Churches and houses of religion should be designated as nuclear test zones. Kill them all, let their God sort them out. We'd like to give them all a frontal lobotomy. Line them up and shoot them. And then as someone who studies race relations, this one always gets to me, the only good Christian is a dead Christian, because that's a variation of the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Now, I can give you a lot more, but we want to leave here with a little bit of happy note. So uh, this just to let you know that this is not just, well, you know, they're just as tasteful for me. There is a visceral anger among some of our, of our respondents. But does it go beyond that? I want to touch on a, uh, a theory of dehumanization. Haslam had a theory of dehumanization, and he talked about animalistic dehumanization. And some of the characteristics of animalistic dehumanization were things such as this, a, a lack of culture. When we dehumanize other humans as not being fully humans, being animals, we, we talk about how they don't have a culture. 
you know, they just, you know, because animals, we don't think of animals as having a culture. And so these humans, you know, they just, they're just savages. They have no culture. Uh, coarseness. You know, they're coarse, they're rude. Uh, you know, we don't want to be around the, these individuals. Amorality. That uh, we tend to develop these stereotypes of these groups being amoral, having no, have, living in chaos. Irrationality. Uh, oftentimes when we dehumanize other groups, we talk about them being simplistic, them not being able to rationally think through what's happening. And then childlikeness. Uh, their kids, they need to be guided, they need to be led. You know, these examples, uh, I can go through and talk to y'all, and if someone wants to ask a question about how this has played out in race relations. You know, we talk about uh, Native Americans and African Americans and, and Hispanic Americans. A lot of these stereotypes play themselves out. And so when he was developing this, I think he had things like this in mind, and these are their examples. But now the question I ask is, do these also describe the comments that I'm reading when I'm looking at all this qualitative work? And the answer is yes. Now, for the sake of time, I'm only going to look at one of these. I'm going to look at childless, uh, childlikeness. In childlikeness, this is seeing group members as immature and easily manipulated. My respondents oftentimes talked about how easily Christians are manipulated, often by evil leaders. So what they basically did is, you know, these people really are making their decisions for, uh, others are making their decisions for them. For example, this one respondent. The leaders are deceptive and power-hungry individuals who invoke God in a political sense to rally their support. They play to people's emotions daily. Or this one. Their movement's leaders are the worst type of manipulative or authoritarian scum, and their millions of followers are sad, weak people who are all too willing to give up their self-respect and liberty for a fantasy. Now, okay, that's a couple of quotes, but is this, is this a theme? Well, it goes along with other themes. For example, the, the, the notion that Christians choose Christianity because they've come to the conclusion or they, they, they want it or, or they're rational about it is sort of dismissed. And now we can argue that perhaps, you know, we're, we're, we're socialized and we accept it, but that's true about anything. One of the concepts that illustrate this is the concept of being brainwashed. This came up again and again among my respondents. Comments like this. The fact that all information about life is con contained in the brain it would die with them, it would not be available for a heaven escapes them. They are truly brainwashed. The clothes and clearly brainwashed minds, and they put the quotes around that, not me, of those, these people make them unable to understand the humanity of tolerant and open-minded society. So brainwashing is the image that people have washed your brain and you do not have the ability to make your own decisions, kind of like a child. Somebody needs to make decisions for you. Oftentimes, it is uh, these evil leaders who are making the decisions for these individuals. 
Now, what is dehumanization, animalistic dehumanization, without talking about being an animal? When they talk about dehumanizing African Americans, they use animals such as apes and things like this, you know, uh, animals that are strong but mindless, that sort of thing. Well, they didn't use apes and things to talk about Christians. They did use an animal, though, and often the animal was the sheep. They talked about Christians as sheep. They also used to talk about lemmings. Uh, they, they, they talked about zombies a couple of times, but that's not a real animal, is it? <laughs> Do they have zombies here somewhere? Okay. I feel that they are sheep, not thinking for themselves. Poor thinkers, warped logic, they worship a shepherd, so they are quick. What animal comes to mind? They behave like sheep with guns. I never saw a sheep with a gun before. I hope I never do. I think they make a movie about that, didn't they? Oh, well. I watched the Sci-Fi Channel too much. Uh, sheep. So the sheep is the animal that Christians are dehumanized to being, mindless, brainwashed, following people, uh, no matter what they say or do. Uh, so we can clearly say this is connected to dehumanization. Now, for all five of those points, I, you know, there's clearly evidence of, of this among my respondents' answers. So we have the animosity, the vitriol that I show with some of the comments. We also have, even among those who don't necessarily have this sort of anger, just this tendency to, to dehumanize Christians, to say, you know, they're just mindless sheep, uh, they're irrational, they're, they're coarse, rude, with no real culture, they, they, they don't have a morality worth respecting. So this is sort of the attitudes that we see among the respondents. Okay. Does this matter? In other words, do people actually act on these sort of attitudes? And I'm going to show you some evidence that I would argue says that they do. Uh, and I'll tell you about my books in a few minutes. But my first book over there is called Compromising Scholarship. And basically, I was, at the time, I had not done the research on Christianophobia. I was really trying to understand, is there academic bias? I suspected there was, but there was no real research on that. So what I did was I sent a survey out to academics in several different disciplines. I asked them a question. I asked them a question about these social groups. I, I asked them that if they found out that they, had a, that they were trying to hire someone and they belonged to, to one of these groups, I asked them one at a time. You know, they found they were a Democrat, found they were a Republican, or a Green Party, or a Libertarian, or, or what have you. They found that out about their applicant. Would it make them more or less willing to hire them? So basically, I'm asking them, are they willing to discriminate against people based on something that does not, uh, does not comport with uh, what they should be looking at when it comes to hiring someone? These are the disciplines that I sent the surveys out to. So I tried to cover some of the humanities, uh, social sciences, hard sciences, just to get a sense of it. My initial, before I got collected data, I made a prediction. My prediction was that the groups that would face the most prejudice would be political conservatives. And the reason why was I belong to, as, as uh, you all know, heard, I belong to a Christian group of Christian sociologists. 
I knew of no group, none, of Republican sociologists. Uh, you know, I thought that, that, you know, that was a mythical creature like the unicorn. Uh, so I figured, well, there's going to be prejudice. There will probably be some religious prejudice, but what they're really going to be, be hating is you know, the Republicans. Don't tell my wife, because I don't like to say this often, I was wrong. There was prejudice against Republicans, but it was not as strong as against the fundamentalists and the evangelicals. On this side is if they, if they say belonging to a group would damage their willingness to hire them, on this side enhances. As you can see, academics like to damage more than they like to enhance. Uh, you can see that about 50% of my sample, and I can, you know, in the book, I break it down by discipline. And the harder sciences are more open than the softer, than the humanities and such. But about 50% of all of them, uh, if they find out the person is a fundamentalist, they're less willing to hire them. Uh, close to 40% on evangelicals. When it came to Republicans, that's the red mark. That's only about 20% were less willing to hire them. And then when you get down to Muslim and atheists, you, you, know, you get at numbers about 5%. So why would the academics be less willing to hire uh, Christian fundamentalists and evangelicals? Well, remember, academia is one of those areas where we probably will find uh, more likely to be white, male, definitely educated, uh, wealthy, maybe not so much, uh, individuals, progressive, not religious. And so they're more likely to have the sort of stereotypes that we just saw up there. Uh, some of the stereotypes, Christians can't think, critically think, that they are led by, as sheep. They have inability to engage in logic. Why do we want to hire them? You know, I came to that conclusion after I did the other research when I had these findings. This suggests that Christianophobia means that Christians pay a price for it. It's not just theoretical. It's not just, boy, it'd be nice if we all learn how to get along with each other. But there's actually a price to be paid. I'm actually doing some research now on media. And you know, when I do my research, I like to look at a variety of different factors. I don't want to focus on just Christians. And so I looked at a lot of different uh, elements as to uh, possible media bias. Uh, but what I'm finding out is that the bias is strongest against conservative Christians. So anyways, that, that's still, that, that, that book's not been, uh, I haven't found a publisher for it yet, but I'm looking forward to uh, getting that out there as well. OK. What we now know, uh, those with hatred with Christians have a great deal of per capita social and cultural power. We had already looked at that. Uh, we know that powerful cultural institutions are where we usually learn about prejudice discrimination. Who talks about prejudice discrimination? You talk about it in academia, right? The media does something with it. We see a lot of it in, in, our, in, in arts. And so when it comes to prejudice discrimination, who's going to talk about it? Those individuals who didn't have Christianophobia, now you kind of see why there's not been a lot of work on Christianophobia in, in academia, because people tend to be blind to their own types of prejudices. Powerful cultural institutions are where we find anti-Christian prejudice and discrimination. And so it'll be difficult to document Christianophobia, phobic discrimination, but we already have evidence that it exists. You know, ideally, we would, we, you know, there's going to be more research on it. I hope to. 
Uh, I'd like to spearhead more research on it. Uh, there's definitely some things I, I, you know, we need to do to have a better grasp of it. But we already have some evidence that it exists. The extent of it, we're not sure. The effect of it, we're not sure. But it exists. Given this, and now I, I can turn off being a, uh, a sociologist and then just talk as a Christian. What should we do about it? Let me just suggest that there are two bad approaches. Approach number one, ignore Christianophobia or blame Christians for it. And I, actually, I've seen, I've seen Christians do this. Well, you know, if you all just, uh, you know, if you all acted right or voted the way we wanted to, then people would not hate you so much. Now, we would not do that with any other group, would we? But there are, there are people who say that's the, way, that's the way to approach to go. I've just shown that it's highly likely that Christians may not be hired for positions because they're a Christian. Are we going to blame Christians for that? But then there is the other extreme, and that's screaming persecution for everything. We're being persecuted. Da, 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 da. Now, I don't like that, and I'll tell you why. Because Christian persecution is real. If you go to the Middle East, where Christians are being tossed out of their churches, being put in jail, being killed, when those people want to talk about Christian persecution, I will listen. And I will say, yes, that's happening. We need to do something about that. If we want to talk about Christian discrimination or, or anti-Christian bias, that's fine. Persecution, I think, is a word we should reserve for people who are losing, who are losing their lives, who are being thrown in jail. Uh, so what I propose is a more middle ground approach where we appreciate where, we've come, where we're coming from and move forward from there. So what's this middle ground approach that I? Now, understand, I'm talking as a Christian. I hope I've brought some information to you as a scholar. This is a question that we as Christians have to talk and deal with. So I, I'm not coming to you as I figured out it all out. I have all the answers. I don't. But, uh, but let's, you know, this is some of my ideas. Uh, first thing is, we have to recognize that we're no longer the dominant religious group in the United States. We're still the, the highest numbers. Uh, but the age in which Christ, you know, Christianity was the dominant cultural impact at least for right now and for the foreseeable future, that is over. I, would, I won't say we'll never come back, because, you know, like the famous line in Rudy, two things about theology, you asked me about theology the other day, two things I think about theology, there is a God, and I'm not him. You know, so, uh, so will, ever come back, will we ever have that sort of force again? Who knows? But it's not here right now. However, we have to be ready to defend our place in the public square. One thing I didn't go into as, as much in this talk is one of the things people with Christianophobia argue is that Christians don't have a right to the public square. You know, you shouldn't bring your religion to the public square. Uh, and so I think that we have to be ready to defend, say, look, you know, we may not be the dominant group, but we have a right to have a say. Uh, you know, this is the pipe dream, I know, but being unified in the body of Christ would really help out. If we could learn to not just you know, let our differences go away and become exactly alike, but to appreciate our brothers and sisters in Christ, even when we disagree with them you know, when it comes to theology, even if we're uncomfortable uh, with them of different races, and gas, even when we disagree with them politically. You know, can, we, can we accept, you know, if you're a Republican, you accept a Christian Democrat and vice versa, and work together on things that you do agree with and not 
spend all your time arguing with what you don't agree with. I also argue that we, we have to integrate into the mainstream culture institutions. One of the reasons why that the media and the arts and academia have developed Christian phobia, I believe, is that, that Christians are not there. And when they're not there, then it becomes harder for people to uh, humanize Christians. And so while you know, a Christian school is, 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 is great, uh, all Christians can't go and work and teach on Christian campuses. Some of us are have to go to University of North Texas and, 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 or, or whatever and work there. Same thing with Christian media. I mean, I, Christian media is great. What I've been looking forward to is that, is that story, that mainstream story that's not God's not dead, which is overly preaching, but has a great message, you know, and it's just a great story. And, you could, and, and we kind of say, yeah, I wonder if there's a Christian behind that without it being screaming in your face. Okay, just really quickly, i just touch on these and then I'll open up for questions. Uh, our place in the plug square. Let me just put it this way. Why can feminists advocate for their values but not Christians? Because one thing I heard often, again, was that Christians should stay at their homes and their churches. And that's where they should stay. Well, if you're, well should feminists just stay in their homes and their organizations? Do Christians have the right to uh, advocate like anyone else, they don't have the right to win, but the right to be out there. And I do think there's a real danger. If you see some of the things that are happening, what's happening in Vanderbilt, where they're basically trying to kick Christian groups off campus, uh, there, there really are people who are trying to take Christians out of the public square. This is not just a fantasy. It's not just what people have said that they want. When you have that as a value, you look for opportunities where you can do it and not seem to be a bigot. Becoming unified, I'll just go through this real quickly. Uh, you know, something to learn with racial issues. You know, uh, when we are separate from other brothers and sisters, we've got to find what the problem is. Uh, we've got to identify what we have in common. Uh, we focus, I think, too much on, what, on our differences. We'll be 95% in agreement, and that 5% we want to tear each other apart about. Uh, recognize, and race, I, you know, recognize the cultural racial differences at play. So we do recognize the differences. Uh, we do have ideas that address the concerns of everybody. And we work towards a solution all, that all can accept. You know, if we could do this, I think we could at least lessen some of the, some of the disunity we find in the body of Christ. We're not going to get rid of it completely. And maybe we need some of it for a certain tension. But if we are in a culture that has more Christianophobia, then we have to think about ways in which we can address it as a body and not one group at a time. And then I just want to talk, you know, cultural institutions. Like I said, I think we need to think about how we're going to become part of them. Uh, the media, the arts, entertainment, academia. You know, how can we become part of the mainstream and, and not just stay within our Christian silos? Uh, one of the reasons why I feel like I've called to being in a state university is to have an influence there. I hope to try to establish a Christian studies center at a state university, not on a Christian college campus. It'd be the first one uh, of its type in the nation. There are Jewish study programs, Islamic studies programs. There's about, oh, about 
20, 22, 23 Islamic studies programs across the nation. And I believe there's like over 100 Jewish studies programs across the nation. And these are not at, I mean, there's, there's, I don't think there's any Islamic colleges in the United States. There's a couple of Jewish colleges. So these are places that are not at Islamic or Jewish colleges. And, uh, you know, if you look, if you ask academics who, who they prefer, they don't prefer the Christians. They prefer the, the Muslims and the Jews. I think that there, there, there is a reason behind that. Can we do that with the others, uh, with the media and the arts and entertainment? It's a challenge I think that we have to think about. So these are some of the ideas that I have on how we can try to address this uh, in a multifaceted way. I think it's a challenge that we're going to have to take seriously for the next who knows how many years. Uh, I like to think of this as a generational challenge. Uh, if we look for short-term solutions, then uh, I don't think they're going to stick. This, this developed over a long period of time. I don't think it's going to go away uh, in the short term. So being ready for the long haul, I think, is quite vital for us. And with that, I'll open up to questions.